you're probably in the most violent city in the world, so you're likely to get kidnapped or killed. But apart from that, it should be brilliant. <laughs> Uncovering the most amazing stories from the most talented innovators and creatives in marketing, tech and digital. This is the Wonderful People Podcast. Hi and welcome to another episode of the Wonderful People Podcast with uh, Phil, Batman Jones and Dan Robin Mordub. <laughs> you know, we always have an argument who's Batman and Robin and, we, and I think if you listen to the last episode, you'll work out that Phil is very clearly Batman and I'm his sidekick. But... Um, Phil, tell me a little bit about your week. What's been happening? Well, it uh, actually goes back just a bit before the week because uh, I took my grandson, Frank, who's five, for a haircut. The two of us. I'm supposed to be getting a cheap one because I'm an old age pensioner <laughs> and he's on kids' rates. It cost me 140 quid. Really? For the, for the two of us because I parked my little Mini Cooper outside while we were having a haircut came out and someone has stolen the bloody wing mirror so, no. <laughs> so tomorrow or this afternoon or tomorrow i've got to take it in to uh have a little replacement mirror so it was a 140 pound haircut for me and one five-year-old which was a, a bit of a pig um and the other thing is like i've been through lockdown you really notice all the birds that are coming to your garden and it's just, i'm really enjoying that whole thing about counting you know what what make blue tits and cold tits all sorts but um during the week they rspb had a special one day event where you had to let the rsp know all the birds that have been in your garden on that particular day and on that day a spotted woodpecker just came and landed and started to eat and came back about 10 times on the day it was sort of meant to be but i've Very never nice. ever in all my years, I had a spotted woodpecker come on my bird tables. That was quite nice. <laughs> and I, and I didn't think that would be your answer. I think lockdown life's getting to you, Phil. Uh, well, do you know what? It's, it's more interesting than the bloody Ocado story. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and do you know what? I'm impressed as well, because you haven't actually mentioned anything about United winning last night. No, I mean, 4-0 away from home in Europe is not bad. It's just yeah. we're not in the... We're not in the competition that plays on Tuesday and a Wednesday anymore. Yeah, we say it. We're in a Mickey Mouse Cup, <laughs> aren't we? Yeah, I know. But anyway, that's fine. And I won't rip you about being the second best team in Manchester at the moment because being a cleaner, <laughs> I think we're the, probably the fourth best team in London at the moment. I can uh, also say all my family uh, who are still all in and around Manchester, they're all blues. I'm, I'm the only red. Are you the only red in the family? <laughs> yeah. My dad was a blue. But I was I just I fell in love with Dennis Law. Early, early days, Dennis Law just became my hero. And whoever Dennis played for, I would have supported, you know. Amazing. So on to today's guest. It's funny, it's um, funny though, isn't it? Carry, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> now, today's guest, actually, Dennis Law wouldn't have been his hero. Maybe Dixie Dean is probably more of a Steady. <laughs> <laughs> but he's not he's not that old but Dixie Dean would be, would definitely have a place on the mantelpiece there um, today's guest served nearly six years as the CEO at the British Olympic Association overseeing two incredibly successful games and that unforgettable success in Rio where we became the first nation to win more medals than we did in our host games his achievements with Team GB as well as the incredible success in elite sport, working in global roles for the likes of Adidas, Puma, Reebok, saw him scoop the top job in British rugby, and he's now head, heads up the RFU. I'm really pleased to welcome Bill Sweeney to the Wonderful People podcast. We've known each other about 20 years. Uh, we haven't seen each other much since the pandemic, which is a real shame. Uh, Dan and I are really looking forward to catching up with you and finding out what's been going on in your world. Awesome. Welcome, Bill. Thanks, Dan. It's uh, it's very easy to uh, to geek out about rugby right now, but we want to find out a little bit more about your life and your journey and just the incredible career you've had. And we always start with a, a deep and meaningful question, one of life's existential questions. But if you were to be stuck in a lift with someone, who would it be and why? <laughs> That's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, you've probably got a serious answer for that, and a more and a more <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think. Um, I mean, for me, it would it would it would have to be Cluffy. I mean, I'd love to be stuck in a lift with Brian Clough. I mean, it's funny listening to listening to Phil talk about football, and um, 
And when you come from the north and, and you come from some of the big cities in the north, and I'm from Merseyside, you know, football is such a big part of your life. And I was listening to Phil earlier on talking about his dad being a, a City fan and Phil United fan. Well, my dad was a Liverpool fan, but I was an Everton fan. Right. And, uh, I was at, uh, my parents were abroad at the time and I was at boarding school and I had an uncle who was a mad Everton fan. And that was, that. those were the years of Alan Ball, Joe Rule, Johnny Morrissey, uh, Alan Whittle, Gordon West, Tommy Wright, all that lot. So I used to go and see uh, see, see uh, them play every home game, and uh, I'd have followed Alan Ball anywhere. And uh, and once you once you've got a once you've got an association with a club, it doesn't matter what form they're in over the years. You just you can't break it, can you? It becomes part of your life. So sport is just such an such an important thing. It's interesting listening to Phil talking about his beloved United. Can you do the Alan Ball voice? I can't really hear you. Bloody high voice it was. That's the one. You could, you could hear him. You'd have Goodison Park packed to the rafters. Pass the ball. You could hear him the whole match long. You, know, you could hear every word as well. And he was a right winger. He was always moaning at the players and the ref. Oh, brilliant. 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 You heard it here first. Well, just talking <laughs> talking about your love of sport, obviously you, you kind of, you spent some time growing up in Asia. You've lived and worked all over the world for some of the world's biggest sporting brands and organisations. Where did your passion for sport come from? How did this all originate? Uh, yeah, no, that goes back a bit. We didn't talk about Brian Clough there, did we? I mean, spending, a, spending a, a, an hour with Brian Clough in an elevator would have been brilliant, wasn't it? I just thought... He was, he was such a philosopher, wasn't he, really? He was more than just a football manager and he created great teams. But I used to love some of the quotes he'd come out with. He, I, do you remember the one where he was being interviewed and somebody said, you know, how do you deal with players, Brian, who, who have got a different point of view to you and how do you manage them and whatever? And that's very relevant in sport. I think he said, he said, well, well, David, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we talk about it. We sit down for 20 minutes and then we decide that I'm right. <laughs> I remember another one he came up with, which was he said, um, he said uh, I, I wouldn't say I was the best manager, uh, but I was definitely in the top one. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was fantastic, wasn't he? But um, yeah, but when you when you, when you talk, yes, yeah, sports always been a massive part of my life. And I was I was born in India. Uh, father was uh, uh, in in shipping, shipbuilder in Liverpool, and then went abroad. Born in India, I came back to boarding school and then we moved to Singapore. And my mother was a fanatical sports person and she loved golf was the main thing. And from an early age, she used to always just sort of drum into me, You've, sport is the best thing you'll ever find in your life. It teaches you lessons. It's the best way to meet people. And of course, being a kid moving around a lot and going to a different school in India and then moving, coming back to England and going to a boarding school in, in Birkenhead and then moving out to Singapore, going to another school there and then eventually coming back from there. The best way to integrate into, into just new groups of people is, is through sport because you've got something in common. And luckily I wasn't bad at, I wasn't bad at football in those days. So it was really through that uh, and, and, and a passion for sport because of what it can actually what it can give to you. And it does teach you massive lessons. I can remember, I remember playing golf with my mother at the age of about 11 and uh, a mother and their young son on a golf course in those days wasn't particularly popular. And I think we had a, a male four ball behind us and they were a bit angry and there was a bit of a bottleneck or something. And uh, I wasn't a bad golfer and I teed off and the ball landed and stopped about ooh, six inches from the pin. Hmm. And I remember, I remember saying to her, I said, God, that was lucky. And she threw her clubs down. And of course, the, the, the four blokes behind us are wanting us to carry on and get on with it. And she didn't, didn't even bother listening to them, just blank them out. And she started to give me lectures. She said, well, what were you aiming for there? I said, I was, I was aiming for the pin. And she said, well, it, it ended up six inches from the pin, didn't it? I said, yeah. So she said, what's lucky about that then? So if you're <laughs> aiming for it and you're going for it, you need to celebrate when things go well. And she had these views about how sport could teach you better things in life. And it just really stuck with me. Wow. And, uh, and from then on, I just, you know, sport was just a massive integral part of my life. Fantastic. Love that one. Um, now, we met, I think it was 20 years ago when I met you, Bill, maybe even 21 years ago. But the guy that introduced us was Craig Johnston. Yeah. And you'd been his boss previously at Reebok. Uh, tell us a few stories. Now, we had, we had Craig on here, as you know, and his interview lasted 12 hours. I <laughs> <laughs> went through several time zones uh, but tell us tell us about the Craig that you hired and why you hired him how it worked out and any any funny stories from that era 
Uh, yeah, I mean, Craig is a complete fruitcake, isn't he? I mean, he's, 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 he's one of life's just most brilliant people. Uh, he's known for inventing the Predator boot uh, for Adidas. Uh, he's also known for, I don't know if you knew this, but he, he invented the, the butler, that the fridge in, the, in hotels where you, you put your key in there and you, you pay for your drink with your key and you get a drink out of the, it seems obvious nowadays, but Craig invented that as well. So he's a really innovative thinker, Craig. And I was I was based in Boston in the US and I was senior vice president and running uh, Reebok North America and, and, and some of the global sporting side of the business. And uh, the bloke who owned the company was a guy called Paul Fireman, who was another really sort of out there thinker. And he wanted to get into football. You know, he saw the strength of Adidas, he saw Nike getting into football. And, and he said, you know, if we're gonna be a really powerful global sports brand, we've got to have a presence in football. But I don't want to pay for sports marketing. I don't want to sponsor teams. I don't want to waste all that money uh, on endorsing players and stuff. We need to do it a different way. And we're going to do it through innovation and technology. And we're going to come up with the world's best products. And that's how we're going to break into football, which is a bit of a difficult, <laughs> difficult cha challenge. So he said, go and sort it out. So I thought, oh, God, how on earth do you do this? And I thought, well, who invented the Predator? That's a, that was a fantastic achievement. It was Craig Johnston. So I managed to get hold of Craig. And he was living in England at the time. And I'd come back for my 40th birthday. And a mate of mine was, was holding a birthday party for me in his house. And literally the only, only day that Craig and I could meet was on my 40th birthday. So he came to the party. And the idea was that uh, we'd have an hour before the party started. And he'd talk to me about his views on football and, and what we were trying to do at Reebok and what would he do. And he left about six hours later. <laughs> and, and stayed for the party. And he went through all of these, you know, I mean, the predator was already there, but he had another idea, a thing that which he called the pig. And the pig was basically like a, it was like a, a lycra thing that you would pull over your boots, but you could customize it. So you could have different surfaces depending on the weather. So you could have bigger fins for a predator, you could have less, or you could, depending on what part of the field you played in. So that was one concept he had. He had another boot where, do you remember the old Super Bowl, the one that bounces around the room and goes crazy? Yeah. Took that material and he had that in certain parts of the boot. So the area where you'd have the most uh, uh, pressure if you if you're trying to drive a low shot or on the side, if you're trying to make a pass. And this thing was supposed to, the energy that was in this material would help you strike the ball better. So that was another idea. And he was just so full of energy. You just couldn't, you just couldn't turn him down. So he came, he moved to Boston. And he ended up running uh, the football business for Reebok uh, and trying to get all of these various different ideas to market. But he, he was just he was just absolutely hilarious to work for. They didn't all come off, uh, probably because the moment something starts to work, Craig's mind goes off to something else and he can't stay focused on anything for longer than 30 minutes. Uh, the, the opportunity to play with him, was, was work with him was, was absolutely brilliant. The last time I saw him, actually, it was at one of your podge uh, lunches, uh, Jonesy. And, yeah. uh, my son came and joined me late and his daughter came, Chelsea came and joined him late. And we both left about the same time. And uh, I was going with my son to somewhere else to go and have a, a beer somewhere. And we were in a cab and this cab pulls up alongside <laughs> us at a traffic light and the, the window goes down and Craig sticks his bare ass out the window. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's on his way off somewhere else. So, uh, oh, that, you, was in, that was in Pall Mall. I was in Pall Mall. It was going <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> and he's, he's an absolute madman, but he's one of life's uh, he's one of life's real, real characters. So, Bill, we um, obviously we're, we're fast tracking your career somewhat. But we just wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, you mentioned something before the recording about your relationship with Eddie Jones. And, you know, you talked about large characters with Craig Johnston. And we're going to talk a little bit more about different people you've worked with. But tell us a little bit about Eddie and what's he like. And I was saying to you, I've read his autobiography and he's an incredible man with an incredible you know, sort of um, sense of values and vision and, and, and a way he wants to, a style, the way he wants to do things. What's he like to work with? What's your relationship with him like? Yeah, yeah, yeah he's amazing. Uh, I actually, I met Eddie 25 years ago. So I was living in Tokyo right. and uh, I was working for uh, Adidas Reebok and then... Um, and he had his first coaching job there. So he started off with the university. And then it was his mate, was it Glenn Eller or Mark Eller? One of the, I think it was Glenn Eller, was the, uh, uh, was the backs coach uh, for the national team and uh, managed to get Eddie a job as the forwards coach for the national team. And then Eddie took over the national team. And I had a mate who was Australian who knew Eddie and we, we just got introduced that way. So we'd go and watch rugby together at weekends and, and have a beer and stuff. So that was 25 years ago. And we'd always, always stayed in touch. 
And then he was working here before I came to the RFU. So I, I joined the RFU in, in 2019. He'd already been here since 2016. Um, but he's, he's terrific to work with. I mean, he makes me a better CEO, frankly. And, and the reason I say that is because um, I'm, I'm quite competitive. And, and in my younger years, I always had to manage that, that competitive bit because it would sometimes upset people and it, I would lose friends over it. And, it would, and I, I tended to I sort of learn how to control that. But you just don't do that with Eddie because he's ultra, ultra competitive. So it's kind of, it's full on and, and, and it's no holes barred. And I just think the thing that impresses me the most about him is that he is so curious about stuff. He never stops learning. Literally, virtually every day, he'll send me a, an article or something on leadership or something on coaching or something about the way the game should evolve and move. And uh, he never stays still. Uh, he's, 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 uh, he's, he's relentless, he's nonstop, he's uh, a perfectionist in terms of wanting to achieve the best possible game of rugby ever played. And we probably came close to that in the, in the, in the World Cup in Japan against uh, New Zealand in the semi. Right. But, um, he's, just a, he's just a really interesting guy to work with. And, and what kind of, how, how's that filtered into the team? Because you can, you know, I'm a big, I'm a massive rugby fan, massive England fan. And, and you, you can kind of, you hear the language and you're starting to see the leaders rise up and you hear like, I remember watching the semi-final and afterwards, you can see that on the players' faces, there was still that calm and there was that focus. And you can see there's a culture that's been created. So how's his leadership and your leadership sort of impacting, impacting the team and, and, and the squad in general? Uh, if, if, if you're going to be part of Eddie's setup and you're going to be part of that squad, then you've got to have really big goals and you've got to have big dreams and, uh, and, and you're not there just to, to be mediocre. And sport's tough. You know, you have your ups and downs and, and, uh, and ebbs and flows and stuff, and that's just the nature of sport. But in terms of where he wants to go to and the standards that he puts in place in terms of what does it take for you to be a member of this organization, what does it take for you to really want to aspire to be in this team, he just sets the standard very high. And he demands that of people. And I think it, it, it then challenges those players. Like, do I want to be part of this? Like, uh, you know, if you're a very good, decent uh, club player in the premiership, you know, you can make a career out of that. And that's your profession. And you're doing that week in, week out. But there's a big, big step up to, to being world class in international rugby. And I think a lot of the players don't realize that until they come into the environment, they come into the camp. And what Eddie does is say, well, this is what it takes. And, and we can only give you so much. But a lot of this is going to have to come from you. And it's got to come from inside you. You've got to motivate yourself. You've got to want this. You've got to ask yourself the questions. Why are you doing this? Why are you prepared to put yourself through this extra uh, hardship to, to be the best in the world? And it just sets that standard in terms of where we want to get to. And uh, I think he's, I mean, I, I suppose a lot of coaches like that, but I think he's quite unique in the way he does it. Amazing. Uh, Bill, you made the jump from consumer marketing to sport in your early years. <clears throat> And from what I know, you've worked in almost every sport known to men. Um, you were even a schoolboy footballer at Chelsea. So can you tell us some of the highlights? Yeah, I think there was, there was a, a real defining moment for me where um, I'd, I'd worked at Unilever, and, um, which is a brilliant company, but it, there's a limit to how excited you can get about frozen peas and fish fingers. And, and you know, taking, taking E110 and E103 or E102, whatever it was, out of fish fingers and putting in tartrazine and sunset yellow because of food additives is brilliant, you know, and you can get really excited about it, but there's a limit to how excited you can get about it. And then, uh, and then I wanted to go abroad and I was approached by a tobacco company. So I went to British American Tobacco and I was based in Hong Kong and Singapore and Malaysia. And uh, again, you know, fantastic company. I'd never smoked a cigarette in my life, and I had no intention of ever smoking a cigarette in my life. Uh, I'd taken a, a couple of weeks off work and went to the, their research facility in Southampton and just read up on all the stuff. And, and when you go through the research, you know, and everyone's got a story about their favorite grandfather who's 102 years old and smokes 80 a day and is doing well. But I mean, that's an outlier. Uh, if you smoke, the chances are you're going to increase your chances of getting cancer and dying. So I thought, well, I, I don't want to be part of that. I just said, uh, no matter how good the company is, I really don't want to be a part of that. And I want to do something I really love. And, uh, and as we've said earlier on, the most central important thing in my life was always sport. And uh, we had the Benson Hedges open, golf open in, in Malaysia. And, um, and there were a number of VIPs coming along. And the guest speaker was a guy called Mark McCormack. Do you remember Mark McCormack? Yeah. He founded IMG. Uh, and at the time, he was my idol because here's a guy who traveling around the world, 
first-class travel, private jets, working in sport, invented the world of sports marketing, started off with uh, uh, the golfer, didn't he? Uh, the guy from uh, uh, Cleveland, I think, in Ohio, Arnold Palmer, and then broadened out into this massive global sports marketing company. So he was the guest speaker. And the night before, there was a dinner at the golf club, and there's a large marquee tent out there. And I thought, I, I sneaked into the tent in the evening when security had left, and I, I moved, um, I took my nameplate, I moved the one that was next to Mark McCormack's for dinner, and I moved his to another table, I put mine next to him. <laughs> and I thought, uh, I thought, well, what can go wrong? I mean, the worst thing that can go wrong is in the morning, they'll figure out something's gone wrong with the seating arrangement, and they'll just change it back. But okay, no problem. But no one picked it up. So I ended up sitting next to Mark McCormack for the dinner. And uh, I really sort of lashed straight into him. I said, look, you, you've got to realize I, you know, you've got the best job in the world. I love it. And he said, well, why is that then? And I said, well, you know, you're traveling around the world, international exposure. It's really exciting. And it's in sport. You're making money from working in sport. I mean, how can it be better than that? And he must have spoken to me directly for about 40 minutes. It was quite rude, work, really, because other people wanted to talk to him. But he really gave me his time and, and he was talking to me about it. And I thought, this is going really well. He's going to offer me a job in a minute. And, uh, and at the end of the conversation, I said, so, so what's next? And he said, well, what do you mean what's next? And uh, I said, well, I, I, don't, I want to work in sport, but I don't really know what to do. What, you know, what do you recommend? He said, well, you've got a bit of a problem, haven't you? He said, if I were you, I'd go home tonight, because if you don't know what you want to do in sport, then how on, how on earth is anyone else going to know what you're going to do? So I suggest you go home tonight. I suggest you look in the mirror, you decide what you want to do in sport. And if you can visualize it, the chances are you'll be able to do it. And then three months later, I was marketing director for Reebok in Asia Pacific. And I really, the lesson that taught me really, wow. and I really believe this, is that the times in my life when things have gone well is when I've got a very clear picture in my head of where I want to get to. And I can almost see it and taste it. And then everything just seems to fall into place. The times in my life where things haven't gone well is when I haven't really had a clear view in my own mind about what I wanted to do. And you tend to sort of go around in circles. But that was the initial introduction to sport. And I thought if I can work in sport, if I can do something that I love doing, the chances are if you love it, you're probably going to be decent at it. And if you're decent at it, then hopefully you'll get your promotion, you'll, you'll, you'll get your progression, but it almost comes automatically. So if you love something enough and you're passionate about it and it's not a job, then the chances are you'll, you'll progress and you'll do okay. And it's like that book, what was it? Uh, uh, the scoreboard takes care of itself. You know, as long as you're focused on what you're doing on the field of play, the actual scoreline and the result will just, will just happen. Yeah, fantastic, brilliant. I now know, Bill, why you change the labels around on tables. <laughs> you've, you've done that with me before at Podge. Yeah. <laughs> I remember at the Groucho Club when we had that dinner, about yeah. 20, 20 of us around the table, and, and as you were looking who you were sat next to, you said to me, oh, I work with that person every day. You said, don't, yeah. don't put me near that person. Put me near someone that's fun, who'll make <laughs> me laugh. And uh, that's, I now know where you get it from. Yeah. Are you, are you, Phil, are you sure he's not just moving his label away from you? No, I'm always, I'm always at the far end of the table out the way. But I, I always look after Bill because I know that he likes to be on a fun table. And when you're actually putting a table together, there are some people who are useful to you in your career, but actually they're boring as hell and you don't want to be on a table sat next to someone like that for two hours so you try and mix it all up so I think now in the world of rugby there's probably a lot more fun people than there are otherwise yeah and I, th I think you've created something amazing Phil in, in your in your sports podge lunches you know because if you work in sport there's no end of invitations to go to various different things and events and stuff and and I don't go to any frankly the only the only one that I accept every year is your sports podge lunch I think the reason for that, and I think the way a lot of other people feel the same way, is there's no hard sell. So, you know, you go to other things and there's a guest speaker who's, who's trying to say something. And then there are other people there who are trying to get a commercial deal or a sponsorship deal or something. Whereas your one is unashamedly, right, block out four hours in your day, uh, come along and meet people who work in the same industry as you, just take the time to relax and there's no there's no fixed agenda to it and actually what i find happens in that environment i normally come away with three or four either great ideas or leads or contacts or conversations that carry on because there's no pressure whereas you go to other ones and it's all rigged up and you know someone's after something then you know there's a, there's another agenda there in terms of what someone else is trying to get out of you so i think what you've created there 
is brilliant, but it's also a good lesson. You know, sometimes you don't have to force people into things to get the best result. Just let it happen naturally. That's Thank brilliant. You. And just going, just going back onto, you know, just that, that kind of incredible segue into sport, obviously a, a big part of the last few years of experience prior to, to, to the RFU obviously was your time at team GB at the British Olympic Association. So you were then selected by uh, Lord Coe to take the helm at team GB. So, I mean, almost six mm-hmm. years, I believe. And so what was that like? What was it like during your tenure? And I mean, again, this is a whole podcast episode in itself, I'm sure, but what were some of your most memorable moments? And what, what, what do you, when you, when you look back at that time, what do you recollect? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was an amazing time, and, and, and working for for Seb uh, was a, a real privilege. I mean, the guy is the guy is an icon, isn't he? I mean, what he did in the Olympics as an athlete, but now what he does in sports administration and on the IOC and and runs the uh, the world uh, the IAAF World Athletics Federation, uh, and an ex politician and all that sort of stuff. And I learned so much from him. Probably the biggest lesson I learned from him is quite it's, it's what it's quite often it's what you leave out of what you say is more important than what you put in. So, uh, and, and you don't always have to have to answer every question. So Seb is the master of deciding when he wants to speak and when he doesn't want to speak and not answering every single question he's asked and, uh, and just being relaxed about making sure he gets the right message across. And I learned a huge amount from him during that period, but it, that was, that was an incredible time because a lot of people said to me, why on earth do you want to join the British Olympic Association when they've just had their most amazing home games in London, which was, you know, probably still is held up as being the best ever Olympics in terms of the way it was executed. Um, you know, why do you want to get involved now after, you know, after the crest of the wave? Well, a number of reasons. One is I wanted to come back home. So I'd been abroad for so long and I wanted to work in the UK. I wanted to get to the pub on a Sunday lunchtime and listen to the banter and the humour of, of being British. And... Uh, uh, and uh, and I thought the opportunity to work across a, such a broad range of sports would be uh, one that I really wanted to do. So that was the reason for coming back. And then it was the moment I got back. Well, there were two things. One, the BOA was in a shocking state. So you'd think after London 2012, it would be in a perfect condition commercially and financially. But there'd been a lot of politics involved. There'd been a lot of friction. There'd been a lot of uh, difficulties for the, the organization coming out of the Olympics. And there are so many uh, politics and big egos involved when you host an Olympics. It doesn't always go smoothly afterwards. So we had a major restructuring job to do to, to get the, the British Olympic Association back in shape to be able to go forward. And then we, we needed to find some kind of vision. You know, what were we going to do after 2012? Um, how do you top that? And, and it became obvious pretty soon that we still had a really good squad of athletes across the multiple sports. And we therefore, pretty quickly, we came up with a mantra, which was, right, we're going to go to Rio and we're going to make history. We're going to be the first nation in the world that goes to a Games after its home Games and wins more medals. And we'd won 65 in, uh, in London. The, t- the target was to beat 65. So that became the whole driving thing. Make history, make history. You know, how do we make history? How do we improve on rowing? How do you improve on cycling? How do you improve in track and field? And that became the, the, the battle cry. And then, of course, we went to Rio and it was just, it was just an amazing experience. I remember giving a presentation to the board. It was about, uh, it was about six months before we were due to go and the board wanted an update on progress, standing up and saying, right, so we've got, we've got a country here which is in political upheaval. There's probably going to be an impeachment of the president. We've got economic meltdown, so they don't have the money for their budgets and they're cutting back on spending on the stadiums and the infrastructure. Uh, we've got uh, civil unrest. Uh, it's the most unpopular Olympics that's ever been held in terms of public support. So that's a bit of an issue. Uh, the road to the uh, the village isn't complete yet. Railway connection to uh, three of the hubs uh, within the Olympics isn't complete. So that's not ready. There's uh, 60,000 beds short in hotels in terms of visiting fans. We've got this thing come out called Zika, uh, which no one really knows about, but kills uh, unborn babies and is really transmissible, which is a bit of a worry. They found a bug in the harbour, which uh, in, in the water, which they've never discovered before, which kills swimmers. Uh, so not very good for open swimming and yachting. Uh, and if you stray off the beaten path in the evening, you're probably in the most violent city in the world. So you're likely to get kidnapped or killed. But apart from that, it should be brilliant. <laughs> and it was just like, but then we used that actually. And, it, and I remember a similar sort of speech when we had all the coaches in, a, in, a, in, a, in an offsite session. One of the coaches at the back said, that's brilliant. That's perfect. If we can manage all of those challenges and we can create the best environment for the athletes in terms of preparation, 
operations, logistics, so they feel really safe. They know they're going to compete at their best. If we can do that better than any other country, then we'll create a completely unlevel playing field and we'll give our athletes an advantage. You know, the Italians will probably go and have lunch. Uh, the, French will, the French will give up. The Australians will whinge about it. Uh, <laughs> if we can deliver the best setup possible. So we, that's all we focused on for Gar for four years. And, and, and quite often in life, plans don't always come out the way you expect them to go. But I can honestly say for Rio, everything we put in place came off. It was just bizarre. Amazing. Everything came off. And then the, the, the proudest moment for my life was I remember being on the flight uh, on the, on the, uh, on the uh, runway in Rio. And we were just about to leave. And we'd taken 366 athletes to Rio. And I seriously really did think, and I think the embassy honestly believed as well, there'd be an incident. I think they felt something will happen. You know, you'll have a, a swimmer who's been training for God knows how many years and hasn't had a beer and they've won gold medal. And we encourage the athletes to stay, even when their competition's over, they stay and support the rest of the team, the team, GB sort of philosophy. And, you know, if they're in Rio for two weeks with no competition going on, God, yeah, something's going to happen. But on that flight on the way back, we're sitting on the runway, there's 366 athletes on the flight. So I just felt, God, we've taken 366 out and they're all coming home safe and we've won 67 medals. And the captain on the flight uh, came over the intercon. He said, he said, look, I just want to say firstly that all of the crew on this flight had to bid for this flight. So we had to bid for the privilege to fly you back and the cabin crew had to bid for to be the cabin crew to, to come. But a lot of them have taken this off their holiday so they could be the ones to actually fly you back to, uh, to the UK. So British Airways have done a brilliant job. And as the plane started rumbling along the, the runway to take off, he said, I'm going to play you a little bit of a, a little bit of music. And he put the national anthem on and oh, everyone wow. took off their seatbelt and stood up. So I'll never again in my life, I'll never again be on a 747 taking off, standing up, singing the national anthem. It was unbelievable. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Uh, do I remember there were some images at the time of athletes actually doing their stuff between the seats on the airplane? Yeah, Max Whitlock. He went up to the pilot's desk, uh, 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 cockpit, and he uh, he, d he did his he did his pommel routine on top of the first class seats. So uh, <laughs> we was doing that. Um, the hockey girls refused to go because when you the way we did the seating plan was if you had gold, you were in first class, and then it sort of went you know silver, you came further down, and silver and bronze in business class. If you didn't get a medal, then you were in the in in economy. It just sort of was done that way. The hockey girls refused to go into first class because there weren't enough seats to take the entire hockey squad. Oh, how lovely. And they said, no, we just want to be together. So, yeah. so they stayed together. So they were in economy. Uh, and uh, I, th I think BA had put on an extra 30 cases of champagne and I think they drank it all. <laughs> they had an unbelievable party on the way home. And then I ended up sitting next to, remember, you know, Katharina Johnson-Thompson? Yeah. And she, she, uh, and hopefully she goes well in Japan because she's just a brilliant athlete. And she's, um, she used to play for Everton. Uh, oh, unfortunately, right. she's a red now, so she supports Liverpool. But uh, she used to play for Everton. But uh, just being able to sort of be on that flight, I mean, it was just a sensational experience. That yeah. one. one, one of the girls on that plane, uh, she doesn't know it yet, but she's going to be interviewed by Dan and I sometime in the next few months. Krista Cullen. Oh yeah, yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's brilliant. And uh, Trevor who, you know, my mate Trevor has been working with her on her charity. Yeah. Uh, we're, going, we're going to get her along and, and sit in front of Dan and I, talk about rugby. Yeah, she does a lot. She does a lot of uh, speaking and promoting sport and the benefits of sport. She does a lot of that at the moment. But no, she's fantastic. She's really Brilliant. good. Yeah. What, an, what an incredible experience. And 67 medals. Yeah. Yeah, we won gold in, uh, we won gold, I think we won gold in 14 um uh sports which was a record as well you know and and the us always dominate but they tend to dominate in in so they yeah. dominate track and field and they get a huge number of medals in track and field and they don't compete across the range of sports that that we do so i think getting gold in 14 sports uh and i think and the, the the gender split as well was really good i think it was like 45% was female medals Brilliant. and 5% male medals uh, the team going to Tokyo, I think will be, I think, but probably 51, 52% female. So it was just a really, it was a really great spread. Some of the, some of the things that went on, Helen Glover decided to have a hen night in Rio. And, uh, <laughs> and we said, what? Are you serious? She said, yeah, yeah, I'm going to have, you know, with my friends here, with my colleagues and with the people I've trained with, and I want to have my hen night in Rio. Okay, fine. So, uh, so we had all sorts of protection there. We had, uh, we had uh, a bunch of SAS guys out there with us. 
because the SAS uh, have a connection to a, a group in Rio called BOPE, which is sort of the uh, the military police organization. And they're, they're licensed to carry weapons and stuff, and we weren't. So, so they connected us to BOPE. We had the Metropolitan Police there. We had the Anti-Kidnap and Ransom Division were out there as well. So I don't think Helen Glover to this day knows it, but for her hen night, we had about... 25 armed guards within about five yards of her party at any given time, all like that. <laughs> Incredible. So the most protected woman on the planet for that hen party. <laughs> That's amazing. What a story. Are you enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share, and leave us a review. I think Helen was at Sports Podge actually last year. She came as a guest of. I wish else. I wish you'd have known this story then. That's. Yeah. I don't know if she really fully knows that yet. I might, we might need to have to remind her. Yeah, uh, that leads me to another question that um, you could never show any bias whilst you were CEO at Team GB about the different sports. But um, a few quick questions here, fire off. So, which sport do you still not understand the rules of? Uh, oh, yeah, okay. Which sport do you not understand the rules of? Uh, probably equestrian. Uh, yeah, that one gets a bit complicated sometimes. Oh, I know the other one, the other one actually. Uh, gymnastics, the scoring in gymnastics, how you get to it. Yeah. Uh, there's actually quite a funny story there as well. And uh, do you remember, do you remember Sir Craig Reedy, who was president of WADA? Well, he yeah. was out there. So, so Craig and I were sitting watching Max Whitlock, actually, uh, when, he, when, he got to, when he had that amazing performance. He got his gold medals. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm watching the event, and there's a, a woman behind me with her husband, and we had we had Team GB kit on, and she said she said uh, she said, "Oh, good luck to your athletes here. I hope they go well. I hope Max does really well." And she said, "Do you know much about this sport?" I said, well, "Actually, I don't really. I don't know how the scoring goes." And she said, "Well, if you don't, I said I can help you out with that if you like." And um, so as the competition's going on, the Ukrainian guy would get up and he would do his routine or something, and she'd say to me, "Right, that's going to be an eight point two, and then you'd wait for the scoring to come. Eight point two, unbelievable. And then uh, someone else would get up and said, he really sort of messed up a little bit on that one. I think that's going to be a 7.9, boom, 7.9, spot on. So uh, <laughs> Max went up and did it. And she said, no, he's definitely got gold here. He's definitely going to get gold here. That's fine. And afterwards, I said, oh, that's that unbelievable how you know this. Said, what, uh, how do you know all that so much? She said, oh, my name's Nadia Komanech. Oh, incredible. Unbelievable. But she's changed so much since she was that Romanian perfect 10. I mean, I don't, you wouldn't recognize her. But uh, so she was guiding me through Max Whitlock's routine and she was the, the girl that got the first perfect 10. Oh, wait, well, speaking of who you sit next to and who you chat with, when you were at um, Sochi, did you did you get to talk to Putin? <laughs> yeah, yeah, with, oh, yeah there, there was one funny one at Sochi and there was another funny one in um, uh, Pyeongchang. So, uh, yeah, at Sochi, I was at the US house because uh, we got on pretty well with the US and, uh, and we were having a, a decent games at Sochi. So we were at the US house for a, a, a function. I think it was a nice hockey game or something. And uh, their head of PR and comms, I was chatting to him and uh, uh, he got a phone call and he, he came off and he, he went ashen. He just changed color. He looked gray. I said, what's wrong? He said, I've just had a call. Putin's coming here in two minutes. They've given us two minutes notice. Uh, we can't refuse him entry because it's his territory. This is his countries you can't so you can't <laughs> and i've got two minutes notice putin's coming he wants to say hello to the american athletes so putin turned up arrived came up shook hands with all the medal winners from the uh, uh, american team had a couple of beers and sang a song and then left it was, it was bizarre absolutely bizarre and he then sang, uh, he sang a song he sang a quick song and then left <laughs> <laughs> well, can you remember what the song was no it was in russian but and, uh, <laughs> And then the other one that was weird was in Pyeongchang. So uh, we went to see, do you remember Elise Christie, speed skater? Yeah. And uh, she's had such bad luck and, and disqualifications and injuries and getting taken out in races and whatever. Where Princess Anne, who uh, is the BOA's uh, patron, was keen to go and, and uh, uh, sorry, president, was keen to go and watch, watch Elise compete. And I, I was there with her as well. And uh, we got into the stadium to watch Elise. And um, there was obviously a lot going on. So a lot of security there, extra security, people with stuff come out their ears and all the rest of it. And we got separated at the, at the entrance in, in terms of going to the area where you're designated to sit down. So she was across another side and I'd got separated from her. And I had to get through uh, the real VIP section to go and join her. So I thought, no, I can't really do that. I'll stay on the side. 
And, um, and what it was, was that um, the US vice president had turned up for this along with the Korean president. They'd come to see the, uh, uh, and the Koreans are massively strong in speed skating. So, uh, so they'd come along to, to watch it as well. So they were, which is why there's extra security there. But then everyone was focused and looking at something else going on. So I thought, well, I, can, I can nip through here. I can zip through and I can go and join uh, Princess Anne, who's further along. So I'm, I'm walking along the row of seats, but I was in the wrong row. I needed to be one row down. So there was a bloke sitting in the row. So I put my leg over the seats. I put my hand on his shoulder to sort of get down onto the next row. And as I did that, he turned around. He said, hello, Bill, what are you doing here? And I looked in it, it was Mike Pence, the vice president of the US. <laughs> and, uh, and my first reaction was, how did he know my name? But of course, you've all got accreditation on. So he looked yeah. at my accreditation. So I think he wondered, he thought I was a lunatic or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so I just, I just, I said, "Oh, sorry, Mr. Mr. Vice President, uh, Mr." P and I was a bit flummoxed for words, but I was, oh, sorry, I just, I was trying to get down to this other row, and I walked past him, and I got across, managed to sit down next to Princess Anne, and, and her security guards were just killing themselves laughing. <laughs> and afterwards, I said, "What are you laughing at?" They said, "You didn't see it, but on your chest, you had about five red dots around <laughs> your chest." <laughs> <laughs> so we were just waiting for you to be shot. <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. What a moment. Uh, yeah. well, another one, my little quick fire questions. Have you got a favorite athlete yourself? Historical or current or? Both. Either. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's got to be Daley Thompson. I mean, when I was when I was growing up and I wasn't really a track and field athlete, you know, I was rugby and football. Um but just the way Daly competed and his natural talent and his humor, his sense of humor about the way he did things and his appearance and everything. So Daly was definitely my, uh, uh, Daly was definitely my favorite, uh, uh, my favorite athlete. Usain Bolt recently is, you know, how can you not like Usain Bolt? And I, I had the pleasure to work with him a little bit on some things and he's just, he's just incredible, naturally gifted, uh, gifted athlete, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, so they're, 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 they're probably the two favorites. Just, just kind of moving on, you know. I mean, uh, you know, incredible stories, an incredible journey there. And you left, you left the sort of BOA and Team GB in such a good shape. And obviously, in the lead up to Tokyo, which is obviously postponed, must have felt good what you'd achieved there. But then, it, leaving it must have been quite hard. I mean, what was it about the RFU that won you over? Yeah, it was really difficult um, because also I'd, I'd lived in Japan um, and. Uh, uh, and, uh, and and the idea of going to the next Olympics in Japan was really appealing. And we wanted to carry on again, the good work that had been done coming out of London into Rio and the, and the squad's still strong going into Tokyo. So that, that was all good. Um, and a lot of people don't realize actually, but even two years, two years prior or three years prior to now, now I was offered the job at the RFU then as well. So I went for that job then. And then I turned it down at that stage for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons was that um, at that stage, there was still a huge amount of work for us to do to get ready for Japan. So a lot of the preparation stuff wasn't in place. A lot of the agreements around the training facilities weren't in place. There was commercial financial things not fully sorted out. And I thought if I leave now, then I am leaving behind a, a bit of unfinished business at the BOA. So that was one reason I, I chose not to do it. And at the RFU at the time, there was a business plan in place, which I just didn't think I could deliver. I just, I didn't think it was the right business plan and I couldn't get the necessary guarantees because I honestly thought there's no way I can deliver this in the first year when I go there. So those two things put me off it and I, I turned it down and I didn't sleep properly for about six months after that. Wow. So I live quite close to Twickenham. I live in Teddington. I drive past Twickenham and I think bloody hell, you know, I could have, I could be there. I should be there. And, <laughs> and rugby is my passion. I mean, that's the sport that really turns me on and it's the sport I watch all the time. It's the sport that I really am massively in love with. Uh, I've played for five clubs, in three different countries over the years and the values of rugby and your lifelong friends in rugby. It's, it's just, it's just uh, something I'm really, really passionate about. So I thought I'd blown it. I thought, no, there's no chance. That's not going to come about again. Uh, and then uh, the guy who was CEO at the time then chose to, then chose to leave. So it became open again uh, at the back end of 2018. So, and at that stage, the preparations for the BOA leading into Japan were in pretty good shape. And the financial side of it, again, in good shape. This is pre-COVID. So I thought, you know, I'm not really letting them down if I go now. And this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go and, and, and serve the sport that I really, really love. So I went for it again and then luckily, luckily got it and joined here in May of 2019. And then the pandemic happened. 
Yeah, God, honestly. <laughs> Unbelievable. My next question, Bill, is that I've got like TV programmes where name the names sort of quite go well together, like Starsky and Hutch, <laughs> you know, a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Tell me about Ossian and Bodie. Oh, God. All right. Two grandsons. <laughs> so, uh, so Bodie was... Uh, Bodie was two uh, yesterday. Uh, so actually, no, day before yesterday, Wednesday. So I'm going to go and see him this afternoon. I'll pop over and see him this afternoon, oh, although lovely. it's all locked down and at a distance and whatever. Um, and then uh, uh, Osh, it's Osh, O-S-H, which is short for ocean, which is spelled O-S-C-I-N. So it's a Celtic name. So, uh, so he was born on uh, Halloween night last year. Uh, so uh, I'll go and see those those there uh, uh, later on today. But I mean, yeah, they're amazing, aren't they? I mean, you know what it's like, Phil. You've had you you've had grandkids, and I know that the light of your life and your family means everything to you. So to be able to see them, I don't see them as much as I'd like to see them, but to see them during lockdown and when all this stuff's going on, it puts things into perspective a little bit. So it's yeah, it's good. Yeah, it does. I'm watching Claire uh, bringing up the kids at the moment and doing the homeschooling, oh. and. Uh, it's really, really hard for her, and she's in a good position. Yeah. But I can't imagine what it must be like for a lot of families at the moment trying to homeschool at the same time as, like, uh, have a life. Really. I don't think people realise it. I don't think a lot of people realise it unless they're in that situation. So, so my PA Holly, uh, she's got two young boys under the age of six. Wow. And, uh, you know, they get given assignments, homework assignments that they have to come back and do. You've got your homeschooling going on. Yeah. She's got the demands of the job going on. She's got a house to run as well. And I don't think people fully realize uh, the pressure that you're under if you've got young families working through this at the moment. I think a lot of people feel that, oh, it must be so easy because you're based at home and, you know, you don't have to commute into the office and life's dead simple. But it's re- it really isn't. A lot of people are struggling with it. Absolutely. Phil, I was uh, I was on a call with Claire earlier this week with some of the work we're doing with the DBA. Oh, really? oh yes. Af- after the call, she said, I've got to go. I've got to line up the teddies in order. That's my next task with the kids. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got all these different agencies talking around this DBA project. But you thought like, she, and she was managing the call and managing everyone incredibly well, putting it all together. Then literally as she finished the call, she had to deal with the kids. Isn't that amazing? Lovely. Well, she sends us little videos, Babs and I, of the schooling. So right. you can actually see Frank reading and writing, and and she's doing amazing. She actually yeah. really is doing bloody well. No, absolutely. Right. It's brilliant. Getting back onto, you found yourself at the RFU, dream role, as you said, you know, passionate rugby fan and, and, and someone who wants to make a change in the sport. And then, then you know, you pick up the you pick up the reins as they were then, and then we go into a pandemic. I mean, obviously, something that that you know that wasn't in the business plan, it wasn't in, the, in in your leadership plan. It wasn't in a great shape when you joined. You know, you've got the commercial acumen to transform some of the world's biggest sporting brands and organisations. What are your thoughts for the future? You know, how does the RFU work through this, and how do you journey through this over the next kind of few years to turn it round? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it was amazing. I mean, I'll never forget it. Yeah, March 23rd, we went into lockdown, didn't we? I think the uh, yeah. March 20th, it was announced. And then on the Monday, on March 23rd, we all went into lockdown. Uh, it's incredible to think now, looking back, that in the space of about 24 hours, the entire organization started working remotely. And, uh, and I think we responded really well. Um, so our productivity has gone through the roof. The speed at which we make decisions, uh, how decisions are made, the process of making them how we only focus on the things that make a difference and just ditch anything else, which is a distraction, get that out of the way. So I think in a term of term, uh, in times of crisis, it forces you to have to operate that way. And the other thing here at the RFU is, you know, we've got a really, really good team. We've got a really good core executive team uh, across every single function. There isn't one person where you think, oh, I wish I could have someone else there. I've got exactly the team that I'd want to go through this crisis with. And then if you go to the broader team, we've got a leadership group of 40, 50 people there. And uh, and they've just all responded incredibly well to, to the to the challenge. So uh, I'm not saying we'd want to go through it through it again, um, but clearly it knocks you back. But we were already well on the way in terms of turning the, the business around from a financial perspective. This will put us back four years, four or five years. Right. But the basic business model that we've got and the base and, and and the areas that we're focused on will emerge from this. We'll come out of it. We're not going to take any government financial support for the RFU itself. We will get access to some financial support that goes through us, but it goes into the community game because, uh, you know, we've got 2,000 clubs around the country and a lot of those are 
really struggling. They haven't been able to open clubhouses. They've not been able to play. Um, the difference between rugby and, and other sports in this country is a lot of rugby clubs own their own assets. So, you know, I've played football for clubs where your clubhouse is your local pub and you rent a pitch off, a, uh, off the council. Right. In rugby, a lot of rugby clubs, they own, their, they own their clubhouse, they own their field. So you've got all the upkeep of that. So some of the clubs are, are, are finding it really tough. And the government have been brilliant and we're just working through the final stages of, of some things with them. But that financial support won't be for the RFU, won't be for the running of Twickenham, it won't be for our business entity. It'll be to flow through and actually help the community game. But yeah, we're okay. I mean, we're in decent shape. I think the, uh, I'm very conscious that the first lockdown, uh, a lot of it was new and exciting, wasn't it? It was kind of, uh, you know, well, I'm working from home and, and we're discovering Zoom and Microsoft Teams and what's the best way to interact and interconnect. And and the level of communication across the organization just went through the roof. So, you know, we meet every morning at nine o'clock for an hour. We go through the priorities of the day. We update each other in terms of what's happening in each of the different functions. Uh, and we probably, we weren't doing that enough probably before, before lockdown. Uh, so we got through it on adrenaline, I think, to begin with, because you had no option. I think with this one, it's harder where people just want the light at the end of the tunnel. That's right. We've been doing this now for so long and we seem to go sort of two steps forward and you take three steps back. So I think people are just tired now and I'm very concerned about the well-being piece. And it's a much used phrase at the moment, but mental well-being as much as physical well-being. So what we're trying to do, we're doing an awful lot in the RFU in terms of um, communication, links, different access to different sites in terms of personal well-being, mental and physical. And we can take a lot of the learnings from the England team. So when, when, when you want to be at your best in the most challenging environment, you've got to really watch your diet. You know, just watch what you're eating. Don't get a junk food. Watch your alcohol intake because it's so easy if you're at home just to have a bottle of wine, you know, midweek, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Well, be careful with that because it affects you and it affects your sleep and it affects your ability to bounce back. So look after your nutritional stuff. Take time in the day to really think about your mental well-being. You know, are you connecting with your family enough? Uh, are you grounding yourself on the things that matter? Um, then you've got your physical exercise piece. It's very easy not to continue with that because gyms are shut. Well, make sure you get your walk, make sure you get outside, make sure you go for your run, you know, get your physical piece going, going really well and, and, and track all that and write it down if necessary. But you've got to look after yourself even more during this period in order to get through it. Uh, so, uh, so hopefully I'm, I'm hoping that by May time, I think we'll start to see ourselves sort of slowly coming out of this. Great. Uh, Bill, this year is the 150th anniversary of the RFU. Yep. Have you got any surprises lined up for the team? Uh, we've had to can a few things just simply out of cost. And it's not appropriate to, you know, to have big festivals and stuff at the moment when, when budgets are tight. So, uh, so we had, uh, we had uh, commemorative shirts done, uh, which were modeled after the shirts 150 years ago. And the 150th year match was England against Scotland. So we wore those against Scotland. So we won't do that again because that didn't go very well. Uh, <laughs> so so we'll, we'll ditch that one. Uh, but uh, we've, um, we've launched a, there's a really good um, memorial book that's out there uh, in, in terms of the history of the RFU. Um, the president of the RFU is going to do a 150 mile walk, dropping into various different community clubs on the way. And we'll get the community to come and join in on that. And I'll, I'll get involved in that as much as I can. Uh, we've launched a few other bits and pieces around memorabilia and merchandise. We've opened up the, the, the museum to, uh, and we've got a really good museum, but online as well as physical to sort of talk about the 150 years. But we haven't been able to do everything we wanted to do just simply because of the restrictions of lockdown. Yeah. Brilliant. You mentioned, I mean, you know, just kind of widening the conversation a bit. I mean, you, you've met so many incredible people, both from us, I think, from an executive and leadership perspective and from a, a sporting perspective. Uh, who is it you really sort of respect in the world of sport? You know, who is it you sort of you look up to? I'm, I'm not saying you benchmark yourself, but, you know, you look around and think they're doing a great job. I really respect that. And the other side of that, who's kind of inspired you as you've come up the ranks? Because your leadership journey has been very, very dynamic and, and, and you know, very high profile. I think um, uh, there was one I was, I was just thinking there of, uh, I think Dave Brailsford uh, still inspires me. And uh, I think what he did with that, with that British cycling team and the approach he took in terms of, of, of what it takes to, to really compete at the highest level. Um, I think that's an inspiration. I think Eddie looks to that as well. You know, if you just said years ago, uh, Britain was going to dominate cycling in the Olympics and win successive Tour de France's. You've somebody said, "Oh, you've 
you, know, you need your head examined. That's not possible. We don't compete right. in that sport, but it just shows you what's possible if you've got a clear vision, but you've also got a commitment to unbelievable standards. So I think Dave Brailsford is, 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 is clearly one. I think if I go back, I mean, having worked in Adidas for, for a long time and being based in Germany, yeah, Adi Dazzler, the founder, you know, and, and, and although he's long gone, but yeah, his legacy and the stuff you read about what he did and his passion for product and his reluctance to settle for second best in anything and his focus on, his focus on the athlete. I think he's sort of some of the learnings from him, I think will always, uh, will always be there. I think uh, uh, someone that always inspires me is Catherine Granger. Uh, you know, what she achieved in, in rowing as an athlete, but now what she's doing in, in sports administration and, and sports management. And Catherine's always really upbeat. She delivers her message really powerfully. And I think uh, she's got high levels of integrity. And I think if you're, most people are successful for me, are people who are comfortable in their own skin. So they're not putting on an act. And everything Catherine says and everywhere she comes from, it's all about her true belief and her true feeling and her true passion. And I think a lot of people can, 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 uh, can learn from that. So there, there's some of them. I think at the moment, some ones that are just emerging. I'm really impressed by the stuff that Sam Warburton says. When you listen right. to Sam Warburton talk, it's it's he, he's not biased. He doesn't talk from a Welsh perspective. He talks about the the game overall. He's 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 a good analysis. He understands the game. He sees it from the player's perspective. He doesn't sensationalize stuff. So you know, there's a there's a big issue going around at the moment around player welfare and head injuries and concussion. Uh, and you, you read a lot of really sensationalist stuff out there because that's the sexy story, the, the, the real sort of extreme story, which you, you accept that. But there's a much bigger story around this. And, and a lot of stuff has been going on since 2001. And when Sam talks about that, and given the fact that he's played at the highest level, he's had his injuries, I just think he's really, really balanced. And I think you're going to see Sam Warburton do a lot more things, not just in rugby maybe, but I think he'll go on to do a lot. That's so I think they're, they're the sorts of people that impress me. I think it's just people that, who come from a position of integrity. You know, they're not trying to impress. They're not trying to deliver a, a message for any other reason. They, they're, they're passionate about their sport and about what they do. Brilliant. You mentioned the CEO that left the RFU for you to get that job. Likewise, when you left Team GB, someone came in and replaced you. I think there's a Andy Anson. Yeah. But do, you guys, do you keep in touch with the people... Like, so would you have any reason to have regular calls with Andy to see how he was doing at the Team GB? and Because he's going through a lot of the same issues as you, I suppose, yeah. you know, the pandemic. We probably haven't been in touch enough, actually. It's very difficult to hold him because he's on, he's on the beach a lot now and he and he's, uh, goes for walks along the river and he does his airfix models because the BOA is in such great shape. He doesn't have much to do. So, you know, his, his job's really, really easy. I'm only joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not being serious. But, um, no, we do keep in touch. We haven't spoken for a while now, but, I mean, he's had a really tough time now because you can imagine if you go from expecting the Olympics to take place in, uh, in, in 2020 and now we're all hoping it's going to happen in 21, well, all of those deals around preparation camps and all of those uh, arrangements. And when you go to Olympics, you're taking... God, you take, you're taking about 1,500 people with you. It's a massive undertaking. So to rejig all that, rejig all the contractual arrangements, uh, looking after the athletes in terms of how do you how do you make sure they peak at the right time, and that's working with their respective sports. Yeah. I'm sure, Andy Andy's plate is absolutely full. Um, but no, we we get on really well, despite sure. the fact he's also a Man United fan. Yes, <laughs> ex-Man United. No one's yeah. perfect. Yeah, but, he he actually that that job he had in Middleton. Yeah, uh, the kit bag job that he yeah. had prior. That's my hometown. That's I grew up in Middleton, which is where it, the, probably the biggest factory there was the factory Andy was running. All right, okay. And he's he's really lucky there as well because the BOA's got a great team in place there. They've got they've got some really good people who've been there a long time, and they, they won't be panicking. Yeah. Good, Dan. Just um, yeah, question. I suppose more more linked to sort of my world and uh, you know in terms of what we do as an agency, but also the world we kind of live in now. And you've been very open about the opportunities you feel there are for taking the RFU. Well, if the RFU are willing to reshape and adopt a more digitally minded approach, and yeah. uh, we actually spent a bit of time with Alexandra Willis from um, uh, AELTC, Wimbledon as we know it, about the adoption of technology they've taken. You know, and just you know, not just through the COVID period because of the necessity of it, but just that digital transformation journey they've been on. I mean, what do you see as some of the sort of more, I suppose, promising opportunities for the RFU? Yeah, I, I think there's one obvious one for us. I mean, I, I, you look at rugby and, you, and if you've played rugby and you've been a member of rugby clubs and 
the values of rugby clubs are, are good and, and they're incredibly consistent wherever you go. So I played rugby at a club in Scotland. I played at a club in the Middle East. I played at two clubs in, I played at a club in Hong Kong and two, two in, in England. And, and really the values and the camaraderie and, and the culture is almost identical wherever you go. Right. And it is naturally a, an inclusive sport, but we haven't done enough to reach out and make the game more diverse and more inclusive. And we've got some really selfish interests to do that. So if you look at the England, the men's England team and squad at the moment, you know, 35% of that team was ethnically diverse going into Japan. You look at some of the new players coming in now, you know, that, that trend is continuing as well. But you're also dealing with people there who want to make a statement and want to change things. So, you know, Marrow is quite outspoken now and is finding his, his feet as a leader on, on topics like this. You've got, you've got guys like Benno Urbano who came in and won his first cap against Scotland. And if you get the chance, have a look at that documentary on Amazon called Everybody's Game, which Benno put together uh, with, with some friends. It's a brilliant, brilliant documentary. And we uh, and Amazon just helped us actually to, to broaden that and make it available to more schools. So I think on the, it's it's being able to use digital and technology now to reach an audience which consumes consumes its information a lot differently to the way people used to consume information. And we want to broaden the accessibility of rugby as a sport for, for girls and for boys in inner cities across more diverse areas and really grow the sport that way and increase the pipeline of talent coming into the game. And I think that's something which which we all naturally feel really excited about because I don't see any reason why it can't work and it'll be better for the game. And we've got to also do that also in terms of the administration of the game. Uh, and there's no, I, don't, I wouldn't point your fingers and say there's been any intentional discrimination there, but I think, you know, a lot of the volunteers tend to be older because they've got more time and they've come through the old RFU and the old rugby system and hierarchy. So they tend to be of a certain demographic and a certain makeup. But we need to we need to jig that up and make sure rugby is a, a modern contemporary sport, and that's that's one of our major major focuses now. That's fantastic. You, you talk with Mark Bullingham at all about that similar issue that they would have with the FA. I talked to Mark quite a bit. I haven't spoken to him that much on on, on diversity. A little bit. I've read their they launched their diversity plan recently, <clears throat> uh, their DNI plan, and, and and put it on the web. And I've, we've been through that and looked at that. I talked to Tom Harrison quite a bit from ECB uh, yeah. because they're doing similar things. Uh, in, in cricket. I think it's, it's, it's something that you're going to see happen more and more. The, the one thing we keep saying to ourselves is we can't look at this as a project. It can't be a, a you know, a, a classic project where you have a start date and an end date and you have, you know, project management expertise in terms of the, 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 the slick slides. It can't be that. This is not an additional project. This has to be the way we live and work. It has to be part of how we operate. It's got to be how we naturally think. It's not, it's not a project that finishes on 7th of October on in 2025 or something. It's just the, the new way of doing things. I'm going to ask you my last question now, and then Dan's going to finish off with his last question. But um, what have you learned about yourself taking on this whopping role with so much responsibility in the toughest period of our lifetimes? You know, what's he taught you about yourself? I always, I always found it very difficult and for, for various different reasons and personal reasons and whatever, but I've always found it hard to trust people, if I'm honest. <laughs> uh, it doesn't come easy. And, 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 and that means sometimes that you tend to want to get involved or you need to see or be across everything that's going on. Well, frankly, in this, in this pandemic, in this situation, you cannot do that because the amount of issues we're dealing with, you know, we've, we had a painful restructuring of the organization. We had to let 119 people go, most of them for no reason, no fault of their own. You know, they hadn't done anything wrong. It was just economics and and and, and we had to respond and we were being forced to respond on that. Uh, you look at what's going on now in terms of player welfare. We already had those initiatives in place, but they're, you know, they're changing direction because of new evidence and new science and, and new research and so on. So you look at all of the various different issues we're dealing with. You can't do that on your own. So you have to trust people and you have to delegate more. So literally within, God, within about four weeks of getting into lockdown, we had nine separate working groups around key areas of the business that would report in and talk about their progress. But you just had to delegate and trust people to get on with what they do. And surprise, surprise, people, stand, people step up and they, you know, they, and they deliver. So I think for me, it's been a real awakening, not an awakening, but just I take a lot of comfort from the fact now that I'm able to trust people a lot more than maybe I used to before. And this whole business about working remotely, I mean, I, I was never a great fan, honestly, of working from home. You know, if somebody said, I need to work from home on a Friday, my initial thought was, uh, which golf course are you on? Or, you know, where are you <laughs> off here? Or are you going away for a long weekend? Well, now, 
working from home and balancing work and life. I mean, that, that's, that's reality now. So therefore that led, that tends to then get you into other thoughts of you don't measure people the same way you used to measure people before. So now it needs to be more outcome driven. So as long as we're delivering on our objectives, as long as we're delivering against our targets, I don't care if you do it in four days, three days, six days, whatever, just as long as we do it as a team. And I think for me, that's been a, maybe it's come a bit late in life, but it's a realization that I need to trust people a lot more. Great. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, really good. Really good. Just on a, on a more lighthearted note, Bill, just as we kind of you know, come down to land, what was the last thing that you saw that you thought, do you know what, that's wonderful? Oh, it's, it's got to be my two grandkids, doesn't it? I suppose. It's true. <laughs> I, can't, I can't not say that and then go and see them this afternoon. No, I mean, they're, <laughs> they're amazing. I mean, uh, no, no, they, 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 would, they would win that one by a long way quite easily. Looking at the Twickenham pitch when you come into, like, I'm in the office today and it's been completely reseeded. And sometimes, you know, it's easy to take things for granted when you walk in sport, when you work in sport, but to come into Twickenham and then our office is over the the stadium and to walk in and just look at the quality of that pitch and go and see it and touch it. I mean, that just, every time I see that, the hairs on my arms sort of stick up. That's awesome. It must've been hard. must be hard or weird watching the, the six nations with no fans. Yeah. It's odd, isn't it? I mean, it's, yeah. you hear everything being said and yeah, it just, it's just, yeah, it's difficult. It's amazing what a difference it makes when we did have fans in here. What did we have? We had, was it 3000 we had in? That's for, right. Yeah. We got them in when, when there was a slight break and we had to, the NHS came in I mean, even when you just get 3,000 in the atmosphere is different. Coming out of COVID, I think there'll be a, a realisation from the players like, you know, how important the fans are to, to sport. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just final question, Bill, as we come to land. As, a, as an agency, we're all about sort of make, taking complex problems and making them wonderfully simple. What's one of life's complexities that you'd like to see made simpler? Yeah, it's, it's that plastic bit on the top of a Tabasco bottle. You know, I can, never get, <laughs> yeah. can never get that plastic bit off and you've got to go and find a knife to flick it off. And I like, I use a lot of Tabasco. I mean, someone needs to figure out the plastic top on a Tabasco bottle. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Brilliant answer. That. Surely that's a Craig Johnston problem. Craig, yeah, Craig can sort that out. Uh, one, one thing Bill's just said about what he's found out about himself, I think the thing with Craig you actually thought that that's what held Craig back because he wasn't able to trust yeah people and it's quite a big decision when you finally put your trust in someone else he uh i mean we're back on a craig story and maybe finish on a craig story but uh and, and uh, yeah i'm not saying this in a negative way but craig i think felt that adidas didn't particularly treat him fairly over predator uh, and he, he may have some reason for that um but uh, he, he had a, he had a great concept and phil you know it well so he had this great concept called super skills and basically what craig was saying you know, we've got the world's best footballers training in their clubs every day. Well, why don't we turn a training day into a revenue day? So you measure them, you film them, you see what they're doing, you use their skills, you use their drills, and then you take that out and you, 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 you package them in a way where kids can look at what the professionals are doing and they can measure themselves against what the pros are doing and you turn it into a whole concept. And I heard him on, 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 your, uh, on your podcast. He was talking about the same thing. God, that's now 20 years ago. And at the time when I was working with him, I had a few people who were really, really keen on it. I had one major bank who wanted to finance it. And I don't think Craig could ever let go. He just couldn't, he just couldn't trust people to run with his idea or help him develop it. I think he always felt they're going to nick it off me. Someone's going to come along, take my idea, pinch the IP, launch it, and I won't. And I think there was a previous experience that did that. And I, I, I just think that held him back, sadly. And it's, it's just unfortunate. Yeah. So we finished on a Craig story, and uh, <laughs> this one we'll end up one episode, not two episodes. <laughs> thank, thank you very much, Bill. You've been absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Bill. That's absolutely brilliant. Really, really appreciate your time. Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at thewonderful.co.uk.